All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. And as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy and Tech Stocks. And my partner, Chen Lin, uh, is, uh, publishes a newsletter called What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? Uh, and with regard to Chen's newsletter, you do need to put your name on a waiting list. Go to miningstocks.com. Put your name on a waiting list, and there is a growing number of people who are signing up now uh, on that waiting list. So don't waste any time. Go there right away. Put your name on that waiting list because up to a certain number of subscribers will be uh, accepted in order of uh, uh, of their registering on uh, on the website at uh, J. Uh, at miningstocks.com. So go to miningstocks.com to sign up for Chen Lin. Uh, I should mention that my newsletter is available anytime. Uh, you do not need to sign up uh, on a list for my letter. Uh, again, go to miningstocks.com uh, to sign up for my newsletter as well. I want to thank each of you for listening to this show. Uh, I want to thank uh, you for passing this show on to your friends. I would also like to encourage you to continue sending your comments questions, uh, ideas, uh, complaints, whatever is on your mind, to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. And I would like to also invite you to follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is jtaylormedia. I want to thank our sponsors for making the show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Avino Silver and Gold Mines, Columbus Gold Corp., Cornerstone Capital, and Wellgreen Platinum. I have now gone to just a, a single hour because, quite frankly, I just couldn't keep up with all the work. I couldn't do justice to my subscribers who are uh, who are subscribing to J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks uh, because I just didn't. There just wasn't enough hours in the day to do everything. The second hour of the show took a lot of time and energy, uh, and so I have passed on that. But I don't want to give up the excellent work of Daniel McAdams and David Jensen. They'll both be on this show from time to time, uh, but uh, and I do want to pass along some of the ideas that they have uh, on a regular basis as well. With respect to Daniel McAdams, I would encourage you to go to the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity, where Daniel continues to write lots of other great articles there in terms of helping you understand what is really going on in our foreign policy as opposed to what the mainstream propaganda is telling you is going on. Uh, and uh, just a testimony, for example, to the content that is up there on that uh, website right now concerning what is going on in the Middle East. The Arab Spring was supposed to be such a wonderful thing, and certainly there were problems all throughout North Africa, no question about it. But then our uh, non-government agencies went in there and 
set the uh, the match to the tinderbox, and away we went with one revolution after another, and all those established governments fell. Well, what has happened since then? Are we in better shape as a result of the Arab Spring? Hardly. If we look at Yemen, for example, the U.S. government just now announced that we're pulling out of em- out of our embassy out of Yemen because it's too dangerous to be there. Libya, same thing. Uh, we got involved there and overthrew Gaddafi, and now it's just sheer hell. Uh, we had to leave that country. We couldn't stay there. The New York Times just reported today that Egypt is now turning into a police state. Well, hurrah for Arab Spring. What a wonderful thing that has been. Uh, and... and um, since the uh, U.S. non-government agencies lit the match in the Ukraine, much the same thing is happening there. Uh, there we're seeing all kinds of issues and difficulty. Uh, certainly those pro-Russian areas are, are, are a complete disaster, but so is the main Ukrainian economy as well. In fact, the U- Ukrainian currency has lost 50% of its value since our non-government agencies, organizations went in and uh, another, again lit the match in a tinderbox and got uh, the elected government of the Ukraine overthrown so that the United States could get in its preferred dictator. So now we have... Um, some really nasty people running the country, and the, econom- the economy of the Ukraine is far worse than before. Another story that appears uh, that Daniel just told me about when I spoke to him earlier today, there is an organization uh, called Jandala, uh, which, was, uh, which was battling against Syria. And the United States and Israel supported Jandala, and now Jandala just today has said that they are now supporting ISIS. So it just seems to me one thing after another, the more we get involved in the Middle East, and this is the content that you can pick up on uh, the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. You won't get it in the mainstream. Uh, Our government is not talking about its problems. It's not talking about the things it does wrong. It spins everything to make you think they're doing everything right, uh, and uh, that clearly is not the case, uh, unless what you have in mind is some sort of a global uh, revolution of some sort and to upset the existing order. Um, also, I think one of the things we need to really keep our eyes on, and David Jensen talks about this more than Daniel, but this is the the decline of the U.S. dollar. Uh, very interesting. Two of our main trading partners uh, and sort of our our closest allies, Australia and uh, and Canada, have just signed agreements with uh, with China to use renminbi or to use their own respective currencies in trading one with another, and no longer the U.S. dollar. And this is something that's been going on. Many, many nations now are are working out uh, agreements with China to trade with China. The same thing is happening within the BRIC countries, Russia, China, India. Those countries, Iran and others, are looking to trade, again, excluding the dollar. So the petrodollars days that were formed after Nixon took us off the gold standard in 1971 may be numbered, and indeed... Uh, it does seem uh, as though uh, things are really starting to change in that regard. I would also mention that the gold lease rate, uh, which I think is extremely important, pointing to the shortage of physical gold. People are really trying to get their hands on physical gold. It seems as though with the one-month lease rate considerably above the three- and six-month lease rates and only about seven basis points from the one-year lease rates, that is uh, according to a chart at KITCO. 
Um, so this is in conjunction with what we've also, David Jensen has talked about, backwardation, which again suggests that people are scurrying now, looking to take actual physical possession of gold and not necessarily content to just own the contracts on the COMEX and elsewhere. I should also like to mention that Dr. Robert McHugh has just put out his first buy recommendation for gold shares in quite some time. He had turned somewhat more bullish on gold, uh, but now his uh, his indicators are suggesting uh, a buy for the gold shares. And indeed, gold and gold shares uh, have picked up quite a bit after we've seen a a slaughtering of gold down to around 1140 or so. Uh, I had hoped and thought that gold would hold above 1200. It didn't happen. Uh, and now we want to know, is, is this it? Chen Lin, uh, who I hope to have on the show possibly next week, uh, put out a missive to his subscribers today suggesting that if we can hold above 1200, uh, he thinks we're on to another really big move, uh, uh, a much bigger move, at least for gold and gold shares. Well, I've titled today's show, The Failure of Quantitative Easing and Gold, Which Way Now? Chris Mayer, uh, he appears here for the first time, and Axel Merck will be joining me in just a couple of minutes from now. The ruling elite indoctrinated by Keynes have declared the gold standard to be barbaric. And uh, that very arrogant group of self-appointed geniuses from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale, well, they have without a doubt destroyed the free markets and the American middle class. There's no question about it in my mind. But the stock and bond markets continue to make new highs despite an economy that remains in the pits. The U.S. economy, no matter how they try to spin the numbers, it's really not doing well at all. And it's supposed to be the best economy in the world. So the question that I have in my mind I want to address, uh, if we can get answers from our guests today, why are markets not responding as they should? Why are we not? Uh, why is quantitative easing not really stimulating the economic uh, growth as it was supposed to do, according to that's at least the way it was sold to the public? And why do stocks and bonds continue to rise if the underlying economy remains in the doldrums? And uh, another question, will the ruling elite be able to continue wrestling wealth from the middle class uh, into their own pockets? Or will nature's laws ultimately prevail with Wall Street thieves getting their comeuppance? Well, we uh, do have to go to commercial break now. But when we come back, Axel Merck will be with me and we'll um, try to put some of those questions to Axel as well as get his take on the gold markets right now. And then at about half past the hour, Chris Meyer uh, Chris Mayer, excuse me, will be with me. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Axel Merck. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Production of platinum and palladium is heavily concentrated in South Africa and Russia. Rising costs, labor strife, and ever more challenging underground mining conditions have led to serious and ongoing supply deficits. New sources of PGMs from stable regions are needed to meet the increasing global demand. Well Green Platinum's PGM Nickel Project in Canada's Yukon hosts one of the world's largest concentrations of platinum, palladium, and nickel. Excellent management, favorable jurisdiction, strong supply and demand fundamentals, and near-term catalysts. Visit wellgreenplatinum.com to learn more. 
Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE Amex Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O.com. Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times and Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me once again Axel Merck. He's the president and CIO of Merck Investments, manager of the Merck Funds, uh, which he founded in Switzerland way back in 1994 uh, and then uh, moved to California thereafter. Welcome, Axel. It's good to have you with me again. Good to have you. Good to be with you. I'm as California as it gets these days. Even my accent is almost Californian. <laughs> no, not quite. Uh, not quite. You, you can't take, and I wouldn't want you uh, to lose your Swiss accent, Axel, because uh, I think that makes you charming and also I think makes you uh, distinct. So you don't want to be just like all the other uh, American fascists. That's, that's you want to be a distinctly. A distinctly unique, a distinct, unique human being, which you are, and uh, we thank God for that. So, uh, yeah, you, your new fund, the OUNZ, O-U-N-Z is a symbol. It's a, a very unique ETF in which you uh, not only buy gold, but you can take possession of it. How is that going? Oh, very nicely. I mean, other gold ETFs have been losing gold, and uh, we've been gaining gold. And so that's uh, that's obviously very nice to see. It's a gold ETF. It trades like the other gold ETFs, with a key difference that investors can take delivery of their gold. They can take delivery of the London bars. Or if they choose to do so, when they take delivery, they can have it converted into coins. And, uh, and by the way, taking delivery in itself is not a taxable event. You're just taking delivery of what you already own underneath. So if you have shares that are appreciated, you'd like to take possession of the physical, you can do so with the other ETFs. You'd have to sell them, potentially pay taxes, and then only sell sell gold with the proceeds. No, so it's uh, it's it's quite a difference and a very unique product. And I want to thank you for putting that together. Uh, you, taking possession is something that seems to be uh, more popular now. I mean, I'm I'm just I'm guessing, and I want to get your comments on what we're seeing. The lease rates for gold. We're, I was just mentioning it. They uh, looked at Kitco, and the one-month lease rate is distinctly higher than the three-month and six-month lease rates, and only about seven basis points away from the one-year lease rate. Do you make anything of that? 
Well, that's sure, important. I mean, the, the short-term, the short-term go-for rates are negative, and then that means yes, some supply is tight. And obviously, I mean, you've discussed it many times. There's a disconnect between the paper and the physical market, and some people say it's conspiracy. I, I, I think that conspiracy, if it is one, happens in every single market. It's dust and gold. We point it out all the time. Um, when when gold goes up for 12 years in a row, as it did, well, sure enough, some people take out leverage, and so the deleveraging as it unfolds will then provide a disconnect between the physical demand and the folks that need to sell out. Um, and so this is, this is unfortunately how markets work. They tend to be irrational longer than people stay solvent, and uh, the gold market is no different. Um, investing is supposed to be frustrating from that point of view. Yeah, if it was easy, everybody would uh, would be would be rich, and obviously that can't that can't that can't be the case. But uh, so, where are we going to see a second year in a row with a lower gold price, or do you think we can see a, a positive number before the year is over? Uh, well, that's 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 a good question. Of course, we, we don't try to have a crystal ball for for the well, yes. What I do know, I can tell you why we bought buy gold and why we put this product together in the, in the first place. Um, uh, well, we put it together because people were wondering how we hold our gold in the past, and then we did a search, and this is this is what we came up with. We decided we need our own product. But more importantly, what people I don't think realize is that real interest rates are actually significant. Negative. Um, yes. Interest rates minus inflation, um, if you believe the CPI, if it's not more inflation than that. Um, in fact, if we have a very hawkish Federal Reserve, at the end of 2015, some of the most hawkish views say a Federal funds rate would be at 175. That means we would still have negative real interest rates, at least in our assessments. And if you do a long-term projection, if you go out 10 years, I don't think we can afford positive real interest rates. The worst thing that can happen to the globe is to have good economic growth because then we would have bond prices fall and um, financing our deficit, in my view, is going to be extremely difficult. We might pay a trillion dollars more a year just to service our interest expense if we extrapolate from the numbers of the Congressional Budget Office and apply the historic cost we've been paying our interest. And of course, yeah. the Europeans have a similar issue and the Japanese do just as much. And, and that sort of environment to me is, 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 is supportive for, for gold in the long run. Axel, what do you make of, um, Japan coming in with an enormous stimulation right as the U.S. Uh, is announcing, the Fed is announcing the cessation of quantitative easing. Well, the Japanese are pretty much saying, we, let's move our assets abroad. They are more than doubling the allocation to foreign equities. They are also adding substantially the allocation of foreign bonds. They're basically moving their $1.2 trillion pension fund, move it abroad. They're debasing them the currency. In my view, it's not going to have a good ending for the currency. And the hope that at some point they can repatriate some of that um, at, at uh, significantly better, better, better values. Having said that, of course, the Japanese population is aging. Over time, there will be net sellers of foreign stocks. And by the way, they've only announced this program. Stock prices in Japan have already gone up. So by the time they start buying those, those, those foreign stocks in the springtime, they'll already be elevated. So I would say it, Abenomics, in my view, is, is going to be a recipe to accelerate the demise of the yen. Um, and it's, it's not going to have a pretty ending because uh, Japan is much bigger than Cyprus uh, is. Oh, yeah, I guess uh, quite a bit bigger. Well, it seems to me a, a tragedy, really, uh, uh, in economic terms. If uh, growth is a bad thing, if a growing economy, a booming economy is a bad thing because interest rates go up, I mean, it's just, it just it's a testimony, I think, to the really bad economic policies and, and monetary policies that have been engaged in. You mentioned uh, the yen. I should just mention to, Mar- to our listeners that you also have – 
uh, a couple of several funds. You have four different funds, but I think at least one of those invests in currencies. Isn't that the case? Yes, we actually have four different currency funds. And uh, just to close the loop on the one before, don't worry. I don't think interest rates are actually going to go up that high, at least not initially, because central uh-huh. banks are going to keep rates low. Uh, because how can we possibly have high rates? So central banks will keep those rates low. Of course, something is going to give. It is going to be the currency. And yes, as you point out, we, we do manage currency funds. We have two strategies in, in, in a nutshell, if you think if we have a better printing press than the rest of the world, and two <laughs> strategies if you think they're currency wars and you've got to be more tactical and be a step ahead of the game. The reason we have those, by the way, is because we think in this environment, it's ever more difficult to diversify because when the printing presses work, everything goes up in value, but where on earth do you hide when, when things turn the other way? And of course, gold is, is one way to do it. Uh, you can try to do it with currencies as well. You have some advantages and some disadvantages, but yep, that's the space we're in. Yeah. Um, well, I, I just have to ask you, you know, a, a newsletter that came across my desk uh, today was suggesting, and they showed a chart of the gold price going back uh, to the 1975, and it showed the parabolic rise from, you know, from $35 to 850 and then we went into like a long 20-year bear market in gold. Now we've had a bull market, as you point out, 10 years in a row. We've had a bull market. Gold has risen in price. Uh, and this is uh, this chart is looking ominously like the chart did uh, in the 1982-83 time frame. And they're raising the question, what if it's 1982 all over again? Do you think that's possible? Well, I think if we had uh, Paul Volcker come into the Federal Reserve and institute his policies, we'd have a revolution. We simply cannot afford the sort of policies he put in place at the time because we have so much more leverage in, 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 in the economy. And in fact, one of the things I, that's been happening, every time the Fed is trying to do an exit, just go up a little bit, just to raise expectations of going up, let alone go to 20%. Um, we, we have the stock market have a fit. And the reason that is the case is that we've, we've based this, this recovery on asset price inflation. And as rates go up, um, asset prices have to go down. And the reason they have to go down, at least in our assessment, is that the one thing central banks have achieved is they have compressed risk premium, meaning that risky assets don't appear risky anymore, be that mm-hmm. junk bonds, be that the stock market. And if, the, if we do have an exit at the Fed, well, risk premium have to expand. The VIX index, the volatility index of the S&P, should go up again. And everything else equal, stock prices should come down. And when you base a recovery on asset price inflation, that's very harmful. So we cannot have the policies we had in the early 80s because the moment the Fed sneezes, the moment the Federal Reserve says we might have an exit, we have an unwinding of all this wonderful stimulus we've had uh, with, with all the bad for, for the economy that comes with it. And that's why they're, 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 they're having a fit whenever the, the market acts up just a little bit. Well, um, so then this thing can go on forever. Uh, we well, can keep we can scenario, we can keep printing we keep printing money forever. We can keep creating money as as someone has pointed out. The the Fed never runs out of money. It can always create more. Other banks can always create more. Um, but as you know, but the point is we're not seeing growth in the real economy. You said the worst thing that could happen is we'd have growth in the real economy. But when does this sort of fantasy game, this paper game that's played with money created out of nothing, when does it uh, when does it come in? When does it intersect with reality? That is economic reality. Well, um, 
you know, when, when does this thing, how far can it go? When will it break down? Well, economic reality is already impacted. I mean, you still think this is only money we're talking about, but, but monetary policy is driving the wealth distribution in the world. When you have OTLO policies and your hedge fund managers, you can deal with it. If you're mom and pop saver, you, you, you can't, or you get hooked on credit and you fall through the cracks when you hit a crisis. And mm-hmm. so the, 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 the wealth gap is increasing to these policies. Um, real wages haven't gone anywhere because of the policies we've had. People get upset. Here they vote for more populist politician. So you see the rise of the Occupy Wall Street movement and the Tea Party. In the Middle East, you have revolutions. In Japan, you have abenomics. Well, what do you think is happening in Ukraine? They can't balance their books. That's their problem. That's the key problem that they have. And now they want money from the West rather than from the East. So it's already having an impact. Now, the currency side of things is, is just one element of it. But the one thing you can be sure of, policymakers throughout the world have in common, they, they never blame themselves. They blame minorities. They blame the wealthy. They blame foreigners. And so you can see less political stability. And at the same time, we kick the can down the road. And with that, we erode the purchasing power of currencies. This can take various twists and turns, and we can only hope it's going to play out peacefully. Well, we have had quite a, uh, getting back to gold, we've had quite a, a, a correction here, I guess you would say. But I, I get your point, Axel. I understand why you believe that we're not going to see 1982 again in the gold markets simply because things are a lot different than they were in that at that point in time. The United States, I think at that time, might have still been a net exporter or, or just had ceased being that. Uh, we had a much stronger still uh, manufacturing economy to a much greater extent than we have now. We were producing things other than bombs that, the, uh, that we could export around the world. Um, so... You recently, well, though, spoke. Go ahead. You you had a thought. Yeah. Yes. Well, the, the, the biggest threat to gold, which is basically a brick that doesn't pay any interest, is positive real interest rates. So, if mm-hmm. you tell me we are going to have an extended period of positive real interest rates, then we have a threat to the price of gold. I just don't see that in the U.S. It's the first time in history that both consumers and the government have, in my view, too much debt. Foreigners own that debt, so we have an incentive to be debase the value of the debt. It's not in the interest of the government in the U.S., in Europe, or Japan to uh, to keep that value high of their currency. And so that is why I'm saying we're not going to have a repeat of the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Well, you recently um, had a. Uh, I think you had a had met up with Alan Greenspan, and he had some things to say about gold. And you know, he's not telling most people that he talks to about this. But he was, as I understand it, uh, he, Mr. Greenspan is quite bullish on gold. Well, he said a bunch of things. That one of the things said that you can have a, not have a gold standard in a welfare state. And uh, it's up to you to decide whether we're a welfare state or not, but we've certainly increased our entitlement obligations. He was then specifically asked about whether the price, where the price of gold will be, and he kind of fudged it and says, oh, I don't want to do a short-term forecast. And then he said, well, in, in five years, he thinks that it, it will be higher. How much? He said, measurably. So obviously, that doesn't say tell you too much. But um, in, in, his, in his, um, his speech or in his Q&A, um, he kind of piled in on things. He said the Fed's balance sheet is a pile of tinder. That's a quote that has to be lit. <laughs> and event, inflation will eventually have to rise. And, and so, again, kind of we're lucky that we don't have economic growth because if we do have economic growth, we have a boatload of challenges. And uh, then a few days later, Greenspan said that, um, that he thinks there has to be turmoil um, as the Fed has an exit. He was asked whether he would use the word crisis, and he kind of grinned and he said he'd rather use the word turmoil. 
Yeah, well, yeah, I guess. Uh, you know, and you can't see a crisis, you can't see a bubble until after it's burst anyway, he says. So, which, well, uh, and he I, says you can only have a, if, if you want to pop a bubble, you, you, you can only do it to have, if you, have a, if you want to risk a severe recession. And he was never willing to do that. At least he's frank about that. Well, at least uh, the, the, his follower, uh, the one, uh, his predecessor, uh, certainly did pop one. Yes. And it was it was a doozy, uh, and I don't think he meant to, but it, but it, but it happened in any event. Or, um, so I think beyond a government's control, we could always have the the risk of a uh, of a credit implosion again, couldn't we, Axel? Well, well, certainly. I mean, we've driven this economy to to more credit-driven society, and that's why precisely why it is so difficult to raise rates. Um, that we we're just putting things to a halt if we start raising interest rates, and and that's going to be the tough one. Now, clearly, some other things might be boosting economic growth, but ultimately, the debt hasn't gone away. Currently, government debt has uh, the, the has uh, the current deficits are a little bit lower, but the, the pile is just piling up on the entitlements, and um, we are just better at at pushing the can down the road than, than others are, but ultimately we have as much an interest um, to debase the value of our debt as the Japanese do. We have just a couple of minutes left, Axel, but uh, with your Swiss background, I do have to ask you about the Swiss Gold Initiative. We talked to Ron Paul on the show uh, a week or two ago about that and uh, another guest, a Swiss citizen as well. But uh, tell our listeners, uh, what is the Swiss Gold referendum that's coming up? What is it about? What are the main points? Well, I mean, uh, strictly speaking, the, the, the key points is that on November 30th, the Swiss will be voting that, and if it passes the vote, that the Swiss National Bank may never sell any gold again, must repatriate all its gold to Switzerland, and must hold at least 20% of its gold um, in, as 20% of its reserves in gold, and these, these are kind of in combination, so whenever the price of gold were to dip, they might have to buy additional gold, and they could never sell it again. Um, and basically, the, the Swiss People, I mean, the background to this is that the Swiss National Bank has printed um, as a percentage of its balance sheet almost as money as the Fed or the Bank of England, and people are upset. They're upset that the currency is pegged to the euro, or at least has this one-sided peg to the euro, and, and so they're saying you've got to do something about it. The government is pushing back and saying it reduces our flexibility, and the proponents say, well, that's kind of the point, right? I mean, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be doing that with our savings. And um, at this stage, the odds of that initiative passing are, are, are fairly low, unfortunately. Um, at least uh, that's my assessment after having listened to some of the debates in Switzerland. Um, but at the same time, it's a wonderful point of discussion to, to raise that awareness. And I hope other countries are, are, are raising similar issues so that one can have these debates. Well, I think some other countries are, not necessarily countries that are all that positive towards the United States, but, uh, you know, Russia and China and, and some people like that. Last, uh, just one final quick question for you. Uh, last uh, Friday, I think it was, after gold took a, a nice run higher, uh, the boys on Fast Money on CNBC were talking about Russia possibly backing the ruble with gold. And one of the men, uh, one, of the, one of the panel members there said if Russia backs its ruble with gold, it will have the strongest currency in the world and another member of the panel got really upset by that he said you must be drinking something you must be smoking something my friend how could you say that and um well if you were sitting on that panel how how would you have answered that how would you have responded 
Well, all these discussions are, I think, theoretical. A gold standard will only hold if a government is willing to balance its books. And Russia uh-huh. clearly cannot do that right now. And anybody who believes in the gold standard wants to have a personal st- gold standard should have their personal gold standard and not wait for the government to embrace it. Ah, um, good it, advice. It, 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 governments are just prone to spending more money because they want to win elections. And so it makes for good rhetoric. And if, if somebody introduces it, great. But don't trust it to last. It, it, most countries are all countries have given it up again that that ever had it and that doesn't mean it's a bad thing but it means that these promises that are made are usually not kept yeah discipline and people don't like that too much i uh we're really out of time axel it goes so fast but i want to mention merkinvestments.com merk m-e-r-k investments.com is the place to go to follow axel's work and i guess you send out a missive people can sign up for right axel Sure, we got a free newsletter. I'm on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. And uh, yes, have a look at our funds and look at our gold ETF. Very good. Very good advice. And I, I must say that I have purchased uh, shares of the of that ETF, OUNZ. It's where I keep my uh, that part of my investment portfolio in uh, in gold. Uh, in, and uh, you, again, the uniqueness about that is that you can actually take uh, the physical possession of that gold, and it very, very closely mirrors the price of gold as well. So it's uh, you buy a uh, thousand shares of ounce, and you've got a hundred ounces, uh, or I mean, ten ounces of gold. I guess it is. Um, thank you very much, Axel, for being with us again. It's really great talking to you. I look forward to doing it again sometime in the near future. My pleasure. Folks, that's all the time we have for now, but don't go away. Uh, Christopher Mayer is coming. With, uh, he's going to be with me in just a minute. He's from Agora Financial, and he has an enviable track record uh, in the investment arena. So I think you're going to want to hear what he has to say. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Christopher Mayer. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Cornerstone Capital Resources is a prospect generator focused on joint venturing its highly prospective gold, silver, and copper projects in Ecuador and Chile. At its Cascabel Joint Venture in Ecuador, funded by partner Sol Gold PLC, hole five of an ongoing drilling program intersected over 1,300 meters, grading over six-tenths of a percent copper and over half a gram per ton gold. Cornerstone retains a 15% interest financed through to completion of a bankable feasibility study. Symbol CGP on the TS. SXV and CTNXF on the OTC. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or a comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me for the first time Christopher Mayer. 
Chris uh, learned how to value companies as a corporate banker, so he and I have that in common. I also was a uh, was a credit analyst and then a lender at one time, so uh, that's a, a good background, I think, to have in terms of understanding businesses and companies, and uh, he, Chris also has an MBA that he picked up uh, along the way. Uh, and uh, in 2004, he founded Capital and Crisis. That's a newsletter that I have a, a couple of copies of here, thanks to Chris, who sent them my way. Um, and his second letter, Mayor's Special Sol- Solutions, or Situations, I should say, Mayor's Special Situations, he launched in 2006, and that expands his coverage and focuses on spinoffs, thrift uh, conversions, uh, and stocks from around the world, and uh, and much more. Uh, Chris is uh, quite frequently on the media. He's uh, been on CNN Radio, Fox Business, Forbes on Fox, uh, Russia Today, and the multiple of uh, times on CNBC and radio appearances. So, uh, also contributes to uh, and has contributed to the Washington Post. Thank you for joining me today, Chris. It's really good to have you with me. Hey Jay, thanks for having me on. Good to be with you. You know, it's uh, you know I've heard uh, a lot about the Agora Group. How many people work for Agora? How many analysts and newsletter writers are there uh, in the Agora under the Agora tent? Oh wow! Well, um, well, I can't count. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of a lot. Of there's people. a lot. They're all over the place, and, and you know, there's many different groups within Agora. So there's mm-hmm. Agora Financial and Oxford Club and. Stansbury Associates, and each of them publish dozen news. Oh, I didn't realize Stansbury's a part of that. Okay, yeah. all right. So it's a, it's a big umbrella. Lots of uh, lots of really smart people writing uh, newsletters there. And uh, before we get started, though, let's ask you, uh, what's the where's the best place to go to follow all that you do? Just so I want to get that out of the way because sometimes I forget, and I I think it's only fair to our guests to let them. Uh, tell people how they can follow their work thereafter. So if people wanted to pick up on, on what you're doing, where can they go? Right. Well, I think one of the easiest places to go would be to go to the dailyreckoning.com. Uh, I contribute okay. there, and that's a free e-letter. So you can uh, search around, read essays of mine, and then click on different links to learn more about my letters. That's the easiest way. Okay. And also they could get you at Agora, I think, probably sure. as well. Yeah, agorafinancial.com. Yeah. So you can certainly find that, Google that, and it's easy to find. Yeah, and I might mention to our listeners that your capital and crisis letter is a very reasonably priced. I, I see forty nine dollars a year or something like that. So it's uh, uh, your other one, the special situations, is a little more expensive. What what do you give there? I guess it's a lot more detailed uh, work and more frequent uh, letters. Is, or what do you get on special situations that you don't get with capital and crisis? Right. Well, with capital and crisis, I'm mainly focusing on securities that are easy to buy. They're all in the New York Stock Exchange and Nasdaq. Uh-huh. Uh, and they're pretty liquid. And in the special situations letter, I get into much more quirkier opportunities. So they might be stocks that are listed overseas. They are, I get involved in spinoffs, and sometimes these things can be less liquid. And so the price is higher, and there are a lot fewer readers there. That's, oh, that's sure. kind of really the difference. Sure. Well, I, I have to ask you about this because I saw somewhere in your bio or somewhere that, uh, that you have never lost money. Is that correct, or did I did I was I smoking the, something funny when? No, the, it's not, I've never lost money as a corporate banker. You mentioned earlier. That oh, okay. I was in corporate okay. banking, <laughs> and I also started out as a credit analyst, and then I was a corporate lender for about a decade. And uh-huh. in that time, I never lost money in a deal. And that's not to say that a loan I made didn't go bad. They did go bad, but we had collateral and were able to work our way out of it for a profit. So that's the that's the uh, that's the deal there. And I certainly agree with you. That's great experience to start there. I, I think so. Value companies. 
Yeah, absolutely. Now, when when were were you doing your lending? Give me an idea, a perspective of the time frame that you were that yeah, you were a lender. Yeah, been between '94 and 2004, and in 2004, I started Kaplan Crisis. Okay, so I left uh, ING Bearings in 1997, so I was there. And one of the things that I noticed that was starting to happen, uh, I live in New York City, worked as a credit analyst for several major banks in New York City, uh, mostly foreign banks. But the um, what I noticed was towards the end, uh, well, first of all, when I first entered the, the market, and that was a lot earlier than that, uh, there, there were there would be two full pages of credit analyst ads for you know jobs for credit analysts, and now if I go to the New York Times, I won't find hardly any credit analyst ads. Of course, things are different now; people do everything online. But uh, but but even during that time, uh, it seemed as though what banks were doing were packaging loans and spending far less time and energy in analyzing individual companies and especially smaller. Uh, borrowers. No, was that your exactly experience? Right. I mean, when I started, uh, that was just on the way out. In fact, I was. I started my bank, uh, my banking career with Riggs in Washington D.C. And when I came sure. in there, I was the last credit analyst class that they brought in. I mean, they they would normally do is they'd hire, you know, bright kids out of college and put them through a two year credit analysis training program. And I was the last class that they did that. So all that stuff kind of was going on on the way out when I was getting into banking. And you're absolutely right. You know, the, the, it's what's interesting. The banks that I work for no longer exist. They've been, they didn't make it out of the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason is that they they got trouble. They got in trouble with all that kind of package stuff. So it wasn't the corporate lending that that I was doing. We were looking at companies and underwriting them, and and uh, we had all kinds of very high standards as to you know what kind of loans we would make. But meanwhile. The Treasury Department of the bank would buy and sell, you know, millions of dollars worth of bonds on an S&P report, a uh, credit mm-hmm. rating report. It was a real strange dichotomy, and, and ultimately it was that carelessness that sank them. Yeah, well, that's, that's what went on. And, I mean, the idea was that you could just buy a bunch of uh, different things, throw them in, throw them together, and you'd have a certain percentage of them would go bad. You'd price that into the interest rates that you would charge or the pricing somehow, yeah. and you'd... Uh, and you'd come out ahead on that. Well, that worked as long as it, until it didn't, I guess. Yeah. And then, well, I think actually, you know, the basic bread and butter of banking is pretty simple. If you know your customer and you make loans, you just like you said, you price certain things in. You have a certain amount you're going to lose. But it's a pretty decent business. When you try to get tricky and complicated, and you get greedy, then you get in a lot of trouble easily. Well, know your customer meant one thing when you and I were in that industry. Now it means uh, know what your customer is up to, and if you see something, say something to your government. So it seems like the go- banks are being asked now to be more like uh, police state uh, administrators than oh yeah, and uh, than, I'm, I'm than so knowing glad your customer. I'm out of it because I still have friends in the banking industry, and they will tell me all kinds of horror stories about the amount of paperwork and the things they have to report on. It's it's really unbelievable. And, of course, this is one reason why it's so hard for an American citizen to have a, a bank account abroad. So many banks now will just not deal with U.S. citizens because uh, of all the regulatory burden implied in having a U.S. customer. Oh, I know very well how difficult it is uh, even to get a small amount of money up to Canada to buy a private placement if I want to do that. So it's uh, everything is more difficult. Well, Chris, you know, it seems like your background or the, your approach to investing uh, has more to do with uh, with more of a of a microeconomic or I'd say uh, economics of the firm. You wouldn't uh, necessarily be focused in any one sector. You're very much diverse, and you go to making place. You go wherever you can go 
to make some money. So help us understand a little bit what your approach is. Uh, how, what's your filter? How do you figure out uh, what you want to uh, tell your subscribers to buy? Yeah, I'd say blend a little of both. I mean, certainly write about big picture trends and macro and things that are going on in the bank sector and explaining to, to my subscribers things like QE and the mechanics, how that works. And so I do blend those approaches and I do look at sort of some top-down trends that are interesting. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, when I do recommend an investment idea to my readers, it, it has to make sense in that bottom-up sort of way. Mm-hmm. And there's a, an acronym I have, CODE, C-O-D-E, which sort of sums up those points. So the first thing to see is I'm looking for cheap. I'm trying to buy things generally below replacement cost or some discount to net asset value. Uh, mm-hmm. The O is for owner-operators. I only invest in stocks where the people in control have significant skin in the game, where they're, you know, they're aligned with our interests. Mm-hmm. The D is for disclosures. comes back from my banking career. It has to be something I can understand. The public disclosures have to be adequate and clear. And then E is for excellent financial condition, meaning that only uh, stocks I recommend are companies that have great balance sheets and can withstand, uh, you know, turbulence. Yeah. Well, certainly we've had uh, a lot of turbulence in, in recent years, and I, I don't know you uh, in your most recent newsletter or one, yeah, as your December issue, uh, you put out, uh, you said, uh, you started it out by saying the next financial crisis will begin in China. I guess you do cover a, a, a top-down uh, approach as well then. Uh, talk to us a little bit why. You said something about uh, you would treat Chinese investments as if they have Ebola. What, what, what? That's a pretty strong statement. Uh, I guess to some of those uh, the the code issues that you're just talking about, maybe disclosure comes into play with with Chinese investments. Uh, yeah, disclosure would be the big problem. Uh, and I should say, you know, I've been writing a newsletter for now almost eleven years, and uh, you know, my opinions shift and change. So again, this is one of those things where early on I was pretty bullish on China. We actually mm-hmm. had some Chinese investments and did well on some of them. Uh, in fact, I think there was only one where I lost money, and that was the one that scared me enough to get me out of the rest, uh, and it was over a disclosure issue. It was an issue where we had a bank that, uh, we had a company that had a, a name, big name auditor and went public on the New York Stock Exchange. It wasn't one of these reverse mergers, and uh, it turns out the cash out on the balance sheet was reported as being Unencumbered when, in fact, uh, it, it had been used as collateral for loans to the insiders. So, oh boy! After that, and, and this is a case where uh, I have known people. I was in Beijing. I met with the people there. I had a, oh. a very savvy investor in uh, spoke ma- uh, Mandarin, and I mean, you just did all the due diligence you could possibly do, and that happened. So, yeah, that was part of what made me change. But then, in the macro sense, the macro situation in China has clearly, clearly deteriorated. And uh, you can see it in the debt levels of the companies involved and their declining profitability. And, um, you know, those are the things I'm, I'm starting to, to look at. And I think that at some point they're going to have that uh, kind of credit crunch. I mean, the amount of credit that's, has been, that has been created in China since 2008 is really just astonishing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you don't have that kind of credit growth without having seeded some bad loans and problems along the way. So how that will play out, I don't know. I mean, the government, Chinese government certainly has a lot of control over the banking system, can bail these things out, and perhaps that will happen, but I would rather not be there when it does. 
Yeah, indeed. Uh, it could have a, a, a global effect, I would think. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. Is what, you know, more important question is what, what's the ripple effect of having a, mm-hmm. a Chinese credit crunch? I mean, they're mm-hmm. such a large consumer of commodities. That could be, that's the one I think of initially is that their demand for things like iron ore and copper and, uh, would fall. Yeah, we would think so. You know, I was just listening uh, at uh, lunch break here in New York to Bloomberg, and they had a guest on uh, on Kath- with Kathleen Hayes talking about uh, the housing slowdown now. And this this gentleman thought that uh, the next uh, five six years, China was going to be experiencing a significant uh, decline in their housing uh, in their uh, housing prices. In their uh, so we'll see the real estate. Prices thinks are going to go through the same kind of ringer that we went through, and uh, Spain and Ireland and uh, other countries have gone through recently. So I guess that could be part of it as well. And certainly, the, the, we've heard about these cities that um, that are built and nobody's living in them. Uh, they certainly consumed an awful lot of copper and iron and all kinds of other things that drove prices up and allowed people to make a lot of money. But now if it goes in the other direction, certainly we're seeing a lot of weaknesses in uh, in oil and other things now. But I have to ask you, one um, video that I saw you did on, on, the, uh, on the Internet uh, has to do with quantitative easing and why we're not getting any inflation. And, you know, the old idea was, and most a lot of my gold bug friends are absolutely convinced that we're going to have hyperinflation with quantitative easing pumping trillions of dollars into the banking system. Explain to our listeners why that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that uh, you have to think about the mechanics of what QE does. I, I think QE is non-inflationary. Mm-hmm. And think about it this way, is that you have the private sector, let's say you have the non-government sector who has owns treasury securities, and they're earning income from those treasury securities. It's part of their savings. And then the central bank decides to come in, and they're going to buy these treasury securities and place them with a bank deposit. So what happens is that at the end of the day, instead of owning treasury securities, now the non-government sector has a bank deposit. You know, why is, uh, why is that inflationary? Because you think about it, they had a bank deposit to begin with. They bought the treasury security. Yeah. Now the central bank is coming in and really reversing that transaction. It's almost like the debt was never issued to begin, at all. Mm-hmm. As, and so the private sector then loses the benefit of that income. And where is it? I mean, the central bank has it and hands it to the treasury. So it's... Uh, it's almost like, in effect, a tax. If, if anything, I think QE has a deflationary bias. Oh. The other thing to point out is people say that there builds up all these excess reserves and somehow that's going to be inflationary. Well, I mean, the people who say that don't understand reserve accounting because the banks do not lend out reserves. Those reserves are bank assets and they're held at the central bank and they get their 25 basis points mm-hmm. putting it there. But it's not like that, that money leaks out in any sense. Because this, the banking system can lend just as much as it could before it had those excess reserves as it does now. The excess reserves have, are independent of banks, banking system's ability to make loans. Mm-hmm. So I think what we really see now is we see a dearth of qualified borrowers and willing lenders. That's, the, that's what would get the next big inflation cycle moving is you have that and then you start you know, starting to see the money circulate a little more, start to see some asset prices increases and that kind of thing. But otherwise, I don't see us experiencing any exceptionally high level of inflation other than just the inflation we've generally become accustomed to. Yeah, we were seeing um, 
certainly uh, uh, purchasing power of the middle class is being decimated. Uh, maybe that's too strong a word, but certainly on de- in decline, we're seeing a re- redistribution of wealth to a, a smaller number of people at the top that are in the equity markets and elsewhere. No that, you know, that's the thing. What QE really did was it gave the people who people at the top of the pyramid a bit of a handout because they were able to benefit from the, the kind of asset boom. And, and the other thing about QE is that there's not really any specific mechanism where you would say, okay, well, QE is going to drive stock prices higher. It seems to me almost psychological if people believe that that's the case. And uh, it, it sort of gets to what I think is one of the defining features of our market since the crisis has, is this belief that central banks just kind of make the markets jump you know, when they want to. Mm. And at some point, I think that belief will be tested and people will realize that uh, you know, the stock market can still be cut in half even if they're quantitative easing. Well, we certainly saw the equity markets respond on around October 15th when um, one of the Federal Reserve officials suggested that maybe we wouldn't stop uh, QE. Uh, and then, of course, we announced that the Fed announced that it was stopping QE. But immediately right then, uh, the Bank of Japan uh, came in with with a tremendous amount of new stimulus, and the equity market though seemed to like it. So it does seem to be having an effect on the equity markets, but it isn't getting into the real economy. That seems right. to be my read of it. That's exactly right. I would agree with that one hundred percent. It seems to be something that makes the equity markets jump, and mm-hmm. whether that's right or wrong, we'll see. I I again think that that's more of a psychological thing than any real connection between the two, but. You know, if people believe sunspots make the market goes up, then that's what's going to drive the market, at least for a while. Yeah. Um, and But I think the point you made about it not leaking into or not affecting the real economy is also uh, right. I mean, that's that's why we, we've had such a sluggish recovery, and that's why when you talk to most people, their feeling is the economy is not particularly good, even though the stock market's at all, you know, all-time highs. Yeah, it's, it does, there's a disconnect there. It doesn't make sense. It should be the stock market is being driven. Of course, equity uh, profits are going up uh, to a great extent, to a certain extent at least, because of uh, share buybacks and, and various other schemes, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the stock market doesn't necessarily have to dance with the economy. And in fact, if you look back, you know, there's all kinds of studies I, I've seen when you look at and compare the highest GDP growth countries with lowest GDP growth countries the best-performing equity markets actually happen to occur with the lower-growing GDP countries rather than the high-growth countries. So, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why that might be. I mean, it might be pricing, right? I mean, equities, the return you get from equities depends on the price you pay. That's part of it. But part of it also is that you can have good profits and you can have uh, a healthy corporate sector that doesn't necessarily mean you have a great-looking economy. I remember, too, and you probably remember this too. I think it was a year ago, a couple of years ago, where Greece had one of the best performing stock markets in the world. Yeah, that's right. Meanwhile, the economy was contracting twenty five percent. So yeah. So what what should we do? What should policy do? Should should we be should our policy be makers letting interest rates rise? Uh, you know, I, I what I would um, I'm not really all that interested in policy, but I guess if I had to say, I I wouldn't I wouldn't get the central bank out of the interest rate business entirely. I, would, I wouldn't uh, bother trying to manage it. And so I, would, uh, I might not issue bonds at all. And if the government's going to buy something, just you pay for it directly and you credit a bank account rather than try to manage, you know, rather than trying to sell a bond. And then, yeah. 
have the central bank not bother to pay any interest on reserves. Just drop all that to zero and let the, let the uh, market decide what the price of money should be. Yeah, that uh, certainly would be uh, agreeable to me. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it doesn't seem as there's any chance that the policymakers are going to change anything. As you say, if people believe in sunspots and it drives this market up, it can work for a while. Yep. But I was just uh, a quote here from the ECB, uh, Yves Mersch, an executive board member of the ECB, uh, posted on their website today, the Board of Governors has unanimously advocated were appropriate to take further unconventional measures to counteract a lengthy period of lower inflation. Mm -hmm. Theoretically, this also includes the purchase of government bonds or other assets such as gold, shares, exchange-traded funds, etc., yeah, that's the uh, that's the religion of the day. The Keynesian religion of the day is yeah. to uh, is to stimulate through all this monetization of everything under the sun, and uh, I don't know. But again, your focus, more importantly, is on what can you make money. So in this kind of environment, we my engineer tells me we only have a minute left, so it's not fair to ask you this. Uh, maybe some other time, but uh, what are you doing? I mean, how do you – you're looking at companies that can make money in un, any kind of environment that can survive the stress that comes our way as a result of this foolishness from policymakers. That's correct. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at companies that have super strong balance sheets. They've got a lot of cash. They've got a smart, proven owner-operator at the helm who's got a lot of his personal wealth invested in the company. Maybe he's even buying stock. And, um, you know, this is one of those weird times, Jay. I wish I could just tell you and say something like, well, you know, I think uh, – the banking sector is cheap, or oil stocks are cheap, and but it hasn't been that way for the last year. It's really been yeah. a stock picking kind of exercise, and I found that the portfolio I'm just picking up little things here and there. It, it's not necessarily unified in any great theme. No, it's not, and I should mention that we well we're out of time. But the uh, to catch up with Chris and what he's doing, the DailyReckoning.com is where you need to go. The DailyReckoning.com. You can follow up on what he's doing. But just to give you an idea, some of the names on there: very diverse group of companies: Howard Hughes Corp., Kennedy Wilson, First Citizens Bank Shares, Capital Senior Living. I'd love to know more, Chris, to find out why you like those. But maybe another time. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Ah, thank you very much for inviting me, Jay. I enjoyed it, and sure, I'll be on any time with you. Yeah, I'd like to hear uh, some of the stories that you have in your letter. Thank you very much for right, being with you. us. All right, well, folks, that's all the time we have for this week. Uh, next week, we're going to have Dr. Michael Berry with me. Uh, he's just lectured uh, a group at the Federal Reserve uh, in Washington, and Dr. Berry always has a lot of exciting things to tell us about new, his investments, his investment ideas, as well as his son, uh, who works with him as well. Uh, and I also hope to have Chen Lin with me next week as well to talk about some of his ideas. Chen is turning bullish on gold. He thinks if we clear 1,200, we could be looking at much better numbers for the uh, gold mining companies. I want to thank Tacey Trump, my producer, and Matt Widener, my engineer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Avino Silver and Gold Mines is a low-cost, high-grade producer with 27 years of operating experience. 
In 2012, Avino resumed production at its historic Avino property and plans to be a multi-million ounce silver producer in three years. Avino is debt-free, well-funded, and has Sprott as its largest shareholder. Avino recently listed on the NYSE MX Exchange, trading as ASM. Visit Avino online at www.avino.com. That's A-V-I-N-O.com. 